From the Old City, a practical Torah commentary by Gutman Lodge. Exodus 21, Mishpatim. We turn it to him again. In this week's portion of the Torah, the revelation of Mount Sinai is seemingly interrupted while God gives the Jewish people over 50 commandments. There's a general rule when trying to understand the importance of any particular commandment. We cannot know which is greater than the next. All of them and all of the details are precious. Each should be studied primarily from its literal perspective, but also from the deeper perspectives. For instance, one of the seemingly simple, straightforward commandments given in this portion is that if you see your enemy's ox or donkey lost, you must return it to him. Or, if you see his donkey fallen under its load, you shall help him, even repeatedly, to pick it up. The Talmud explains that in these cases, the hated person is the one who continually sins, yet still we are to help him. This commandment is familiar to all students of Torah, and most are on God not to transgress it. One could argue, wait a minute, I'm on my way to learn Torah, or I'm on the way to pick up my kids from school. I just do not have the time to stop and do this thing. Besides, the donkey is only worth some $40, and the load of wood is worth only 10 You know what? I'll give the guy $50, and I'll be free to go on and do what I want to do. No, the Torah says that we cannot do that. We have to work with him to return to pick up his donkey. Now, if this is true about his physical donkey, that $40 unclean animal, how much more so is it true about his spiritual donkey? A man's spiritual donkey is loaded with ignorance and blindness. So heavy is this load that it pulls his holy soul down. The physical donkey is a temporary possession. The spiritual is eternal. But even though none of us would pass by a Jew whose physical donkey has fallen, so many times a day we turn a blind eye to the Jews we see whose spiritual loads have fallen. If it is a mitzvah to pick up his physical load, all the more so it's a mitzvah to help him to pick up his spiritual load. In all honesty, it is easy to understand why the physical donkey is easier to pick up than the spiritual. In the case of the physical donkey, even though the donkey may like resting on the ground and even want to stay there, the owner wants that donkey picked up, and he will help to pick it up. But with the spiritual load, even though the spiritual being wants very badly to be picked up, quite often the physical owner is so low that he doesn't even want you to help him to pick himself up. To pick up the physical donkey, it just takes determination and physical strength. To lift up the spiritual awareness, it takes determination, love, and sensitive maneuvering. The Rambam explains there are different levels in giving charity, one higher than the next. The highest way to give, he explains, is to teach someone a trade. If you give someone even a thousand dollars at charity, he will still have to come back again next month. But when you teach him a trade, not only will he not have to come back to you for a handout, but other people will be able to go to him for help. The same principle must be applied when teaching someone a mitzvah. 
Merely showing him how to do the mitzvah is like giving him a $1,000 charity. It's a wonderful thing, and it helps him tremendously. But unless you teach him how to love the mitzvah, you have given him a large gift, but you have not taught him a trade. Obviously, the first step in teaching someone else how to love a mitzvah is to learn how to love it yourself. And if you do not love the mitzvah, not only will you not be able to help him to pick up his donkey, but even more importantly, you will need someone to help you to pick up yours. The successful techniques used to help pick up a spiritual donkey are numerous. Each person has his own individual needs, and different techniques work better for different people. One practice that helps immensely is to review your encounter right after you experience it. After trying to help someone, ask yourself, what worked? What did I do that helped, and what did I do that failed? Like all skills, the more you use them, the better they get. One good way to help someone learn to love a mitzvah is to explain to him that when he does a mitzvah, he gets a spiritual bank account. With a physical bank account, the way to make it grow is to hold on to it tightly. With a spiritual bank account, the exact opposite is true. The way to make a spiritual bank account grow is to spend it. While your so-called customer still has his tefillin on his arm, or the glow of the Shabbat candles is still on her face, teach him or her to send blessings to his loved ones. Picture each of them healthy, smiling, with light on their faces, and ask God to bless them. This will bring a person's love of his family into the mitzvah, and he'll want to do it again. But what if you just do not know how to go out and help someone? After all, you have never done this before, so it's totally new to you. What are you supposed to do? Here's an example of what you can do. One of the boys I have been encouraging to go out and help put the fill in other Jews was at the Kotel this Friday afternoon. For some reason, no one else was by the tefillin booth, so he and his brother were there all alone, and they only had one pair of tefillin. In walked an older guy. The boy took a deep breath, walked over, and asked him in Hebrew to come put on tefillin. The guy answered in a very broken Hebrew that he didn't speak Hebrew. The boy tried English. The guy's English was worse than his Hebrew. Feeling rather frustrated, the boy asked, then what language do you speak? The man answered loudly in a very thick accent, Rushit, Russian. Oh boy, what am I going to do now, the boy thought. He didn't speak a word of Russian. Then he had a great idea. He has a friend who spoke Russian. He whipped out his cell phone, called up his friend, and told him the situation. The friend said, put him on. The old guy took the phone and was surprised to hear a native Russian speaker convincing him to put on tefillin. He followed the telephone instructions, while the boy on this end put the tefillin on him. It turned out to be the first time he had put on tefillin since he was a teen. What a great way to use modern equipment to solve an age-old problem. The real point of the story is that you do not have to know the entire olive base, the Hebrew olive base, to be able to teach the olive. All you need to know is the first letter. Helping another Jew isn't really the hard part. You will be able to figure out that as you go. But deciding to get up and go do it, that's the tricky part. After giving the very long list of commandments, the Torah portion returns to Revelation on Mount Sinai. 
Some of the commentators explain that this is a case of the well-known principle that the Torah is not necessarily written in chronological order. Others disagree. It seems obvious that the Torah is teaching us that the fulfillment of the mitzvot, the commandments, is the path to the revelation. The most mysterious color. The color blue is indeed an unusual color. It is used extensively in the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and even on the high priest's clothing. Its most familiar use was as the color of one of the fringes on the four corners garments. And most mystically, in this week's portion of the Torah, it was in the vision of Hashem that Moshe and the elders saw. It says, this color was under his feet, it was like the lightness of sapphire, which is deep blue, a brickwork, and it was like the essence of the heaven in purity. Blue is also commonly found painted on the gravestones of righteous people in the mystical city of Safad. Also, some homes there are painted blue. All of this suggests that there must be a special holiness to this color. So it seems strange that there's an entirely different reputation to this color, too. The gematria, numerical value and equivalence, of the word blue, techelet, is the same as the gematria of the word you would hearken. It's also the gematria of, and sanctify them. And it's also the gematria of, you shall be ensnared. Why should the numerical value be the same for both holiness and being ensnared? There's a good lesson about gematria here. If words found in the Torah have the same numerical value, there must be a good reason for it. This is true even when words that have opposite meanings share the same numerical value. When this happens, you must look deeper and most often broader until you find the overall relationship between them. In the case of blue, we find that even though it's found in so many holy places, when it comes to dreams and visions, we are strictly warned in the Zohar, all colors and visions are a good omen except for the color blue. It's the low color, and much ardent prayer must be exercised to avoid it. The reason why some people paint blue on gravestones and their homes is because they see this to be a so-called protection from the evil eye. Whether or not such things exist is not the subject at hand, but those who do concern themselves with such things say, blue is the color of the sea, and the fish live in the sea, and fish never close their eyes. So this is a protection from the evil eye. This is also why fish are a common motif in jewelry and artwork. The reason why blue is used on the fringe, the sitsits, is to help remind us to do the commandments. Blue reminds us of the ocean and of the sky. These are two elements that we cannot live without, but they are also two elements that we cannot live in. Picture yourself in the middle of the ocean, without a boat, or in the middle of the sky without an airplane. What would you immediately think? God help me! Blue certainly can be a reminder to do his commandments. Yet blue is called the lower or sick color in visions. How can this apparent contradiction be explained? How can blue be holy in so many places and also be called the low and sick color? Using sunlight as an analogy, 
The human eye cannot see the actual light, but when we bend the light through a prism, we see the spectrum of its colors. If you would point with one finger to the red light and with another finger to the blue light, how many lights would you be pointing to? If you said two, you were wrong. There is only one light there. There is one light and seven colors. In visions and in the most mystical dealings, we always seek the revelation of God, which is formless and singular. The sunlight in our illustration represents this formless, universal aspect. The colors in this example represent the particulars within the universal, since they are many. Blue is the lowest color on the spectrum. All colors, all of the particulars, take our attention away from the light, which is the universal. Since blue is the lowest color, it is portrayed as the furthest from the universal. This was also seen in the glorious vision that Moshe and the elders were shown. It said, under his feet was the likeness of sapphire, deep blue brickwork, and it was like the essence of the purity of heaven. Even in most holy visions, blue is the lower color. Now we can see the reasons those words share the same numerical value. You will hearken when you see the blue fringe. You will sanctify when you use this color on the high priest's garment and other holy places. And you will be ensnared if you focus on this color in meditation and visions. Eating and drinking. The Torah says they gazed at God and they ate and drank. At the end of this week's portion of the Torah, we read of the greatest vision that the elders saw when they ascended. The Torah tells us that they actually saw a vision of God. Then it says that they ate and drank. There is an argument among the commentators as to what actually happened there. Rashi claims that the elders sinned tremendously by eating and drinking at such a time. Onkelos sees their eating and drinking as a metaphor for their great joy. Ramban writes that after seeing the vision, they celebrated by having a feast. Here is another idea of what the Torah is telling us. There will be a time in the future, in the world to come, when life will be so spiritual that there will be no need for eating and drinking. The Torah here is showing us that as high a vision as the elders saw, still they were within the realm of being able to eat and drink. Later, when the greater time comes, all life will be even higher than the elders were when they saw that vision. Life will be so entirely spiritual that we will even be beyond the realm of eating and drinking. There is one dot com.